Moons Ago, a podcast by DU History. My name is Moira Hussey and I'm the third year rep for the Society. This week's episode is a recording of our History Salon, which we ran in collaboration with the Dublin University Gender Equality Society on Thursday the 25th of March. Our four speakers each gave short talks on historical women and feminist issues. The images viewed during this talk are available through the link in the episode description or are linked on our social media accounts, complete with visual descriptions. Our speakers were Melanie Lynch, the founder of History, Professor Lindsay Erna Byrne, a professor of Irish gender history at UCC, Dr. Nata Devori, senior lecturer and director of the Centre for Global Women's Studies at NUIG, and Blaheen de Burka, a feminist comedian. The event is always a highlight of our year, and we're delighted to be able to share it with you on this platform. Now we'll have Breeding from Douges introduce our first speaker. Hi, so we are delighted to announce that our first speaker for this year's Her Story Salon is Melanie Lynch. Melanie is the founder, CEO and creative director of Her Story, a cultural non-profit organisation which aims to eliminate the phrase I've never heard of her. The movement focuses on highlighting the stories of modern, historic and mythic women. Since its beginnings in 2016, Her Story has created a documentary series with RT organized workshops for our schools and ran the Her Story Live Festival. Melanie has been a regular contributor to our past Her Story salons and we are really look forward to hearing your fascinating insights. Thank you, Brigitte. I'm really thrilled um, to be speaking at the fourth annual Her Story Salon. We've been on such a journey together and I want to say huge thanks from the very bottom of my heart to all the Trinity students who have curated events over the years. They've really kept me going. You've inspired me with all of your wonderful uh, research and insights and your enthusiasm. It's infectious and I really look at you guys. I think the next generation wow like you're just leaps and bounds even ahead of my generation i'm 34 now so thank you for all that you do it really it really means a lot and today i thought i'd give a talk on i suppose just a recap of, of, of her story we're coming up to a, our fifth birthday on the 25th of may so i thought i'd like just i suppose touch on some milestone moments and then i'd love to introduce you to some of the work that we've already created this year i'm really proud of some powerful projects that we've done so i've created a beautiful presentation which i'd love to share with you now all going well the technology will behave itself Ta-da. So I was meditating one day and you're not supposed to have any thoughts when you're meditating, but I had an epiphany. It was quite literally, pardon the pun, a light bulb moment. If Ireland lights up the world green on St. Patrick's Day, why don't we light up in honour of women? So we started the Her Story Life Festival and the first year it went viral around Ireland. It's amazing, 16 county councils got on board and lots of other arts organisations. And this was a brilliant moment actually, this was the second year we lit up Markovich on the GPO. We lit up the suffragettes actually in all the buildings where they smashed the windows a hundred years ago. And we made the six o'clock news headlines. And it was cool because it wasn't the quirky art piece at the end of the news. We got like the third item of the news, like the official news. So we're like, we really were putting Irish women back on the map. And um, the phone call, the phone call started coming in. That's where we got the TV series commissioned and the embassy exhibition too. So last year we got our hands on an even more powerful projector. This is Bridget's Fire by Courtney Davis. I love his work. He's based in the Hill of Tyre. The previous work, of course, is the legendary Jim Fitzpatrick, who's on our history board. Great feminist activist. This is a special moment, actually. Um, we were asked to curate a special light show for the first ever International Women's Caucus, hosted by the Oireachtas Women's Caucus. Um, 
in our own Irish Parliament. They invited female politicians from all around the world to come together for the first time ever. It's never happened before. And it was to mark the suffrage centenary and President Higgins, he hosted a gala dinner. And we lit up with Ava Gorbuth, um, especially for President Higgins, because he's she's one of his all-time favourite heroines. She's actually, she's a fascinating character because she's somewhat kind of lost in her sister's shadows. She was the, the sister of Markovich, but many academics would say that she was even more remarkable than her sister, but I, I wouldn't compare sisters, I wouldn't go there. But um, as a little thank you <laughs> um, from Higgins, he gave me an almighty bear hug. He gives amazing bear hugs. And that was a, it was a really lovely moment. And I think important to, to celebrate with our, our female politicians are doing great work in raising the profile of, of women, women's leadership. Uh, one of my all-time favorites, this says Ninja Bridget on Kildare Cathedral by Sean Brannigan from Storyboard Workshop. Um, they're very progressive, wonderful Protestant cathedral. They love our, our modern artwork. And then we got um, a very special commission from the Department of Foreign Affairs. We worked with Epic, the Irish Emigration Museum, and we created the first ever women's exhibition to tour the Irish Embassy Network worldwide. It's already been hosted by the United Nations headquarters in New York and the Council of Europe in Strasbourg. It could be hopefully in 55 embassies by the end of its tour. Um, and there's a, this is a really powerful moment, actually. Simon Coveney, he closed his speech to the UN with the affirming statement, history needs her story. It is not only the right thing to do, but the smart thing to do. And I'll never forget, I was at the, um, the Irish Embassy in Paris for International Women's Day last year. Well, it was two years ago now. And it was a wonderful moment when all the ambassadors from other countries around the world said, what kind of Ireland is doing an exhibition? you know, you're celebrating your women, we should be doing the same in our country. It was a lovely moment where Ireland was leading the light and, you know, we were really inspiring other countries to do the same. So, yeah. And the, the exhibition tells the stories of 21 trailblazing women from the Irish diaspora. Um, and it'll pop up again in Epic Museums. If you sign up for a newsletter, you can find out when it'll be back next. And then we were commissioned to create her story on Ortiz, a six part documentary series with Underground Sons. And again, our wonderful partners were um, Epic Museums. Any society is how it treats its women and girls. Your story is my story. They broke boundaries, but never made the history books. Had she not changed her gender, she would never have had the opportunity to study. It's women and girls. The smart, powerful, creative. She jumped from 1700 feet and successfully landed. Story is my story. She was extraordinarily bright, so she was ahead of the posse. By choosing their own path, they changed the world. Her story, Ireland's epic women, starts February 3rd on RTE1. So it was quite an epic series, but uh, would you believe the day the last episode aired? Within three days, the schools closed and everything locked down. So we went from one form of chaos to another form of chaos, and we're still. Yeah, we're still finding our new ground um, and reinventing her story for the future. Um, because as far as I'm concerned, we're only warming up. We haven't seen anything yet. And um, I was particularly proud of the animation project that we created. We asked the young people of Ireland who their heroines were. And the response was, um, I think, prescient and hugely insightful into how our, our young people think. So we asked 17, seven to 17 year olds and they, came back with some very interesting proposals. They put an equal, um, an equal importance on, um, I suppose what I would deem patriarchal definitions of what success is like breaking world records or doing something new for the first time or an equal importance on compassion and caring professions. Um, their grandmothers were just as important as celebrities. 
And they said some really insightful, I remember one girl, she, she wrote it and she said, you know, you'll never look at this woman on the bus. You'll never even ask her her name because she's not a celebrity, but I'm going to tell you her story. So they really held a lens up to us. And it was, it's really fascinating, but you know, compassion and caring professions were really, were really big focus for them. And one young fella wrote in, he said the Irish grandmother was the ultimate archetypal heroine. And he had all the witty little insights about Irish grannies. You can watch the animations, they're up on, on RT player forevermore. They're gorgeous. You can see there the granny in the bottom left-hand corner. <laughs> it's really, it's a really cheeky submission. So that was a wonderful process. We went on um, that wrapped, that project wrapped last year. The schools workshops and everything are available still for schools to participate if they want to. And um, as a result, we've been made an official resource of the school curriculum, which is fantastic. Someday we want to see the whole curriculum rewritten. So there's complete gender representation across all subjects, not just history. That's really important. But we're getting there. At least we're an official curriculum resource. So onwards and upwards. So um, we did a really special production for the 2021 um, Her Story Light show on Bridget's Day this year. We wanted to go on a deep healing process, to, I suppose, to help heal the wound of the mother and baby home scandal in Ireland because I was talking to all my friends and advisors and survivors and activists involved and it seems it's felt you know talking to people in Ireland we just don't know how to process this wound it's so deep it goes to the core of what it fundamentally means to be human the mother archetype we all come from the mother it's a direct attack on our, on our own um, existence almost and and it's living history. It's so recent. You know, the last Magdalene or the last mother and baby home closed when I was 12 years old, the Magdalene Laundry when I was 10. So, you know, I, you know, it could have been us, you know. So what we wanted to do was reclaim Manana here and I suppose our, our sovereignty, our sexuality and our spirituality, because it's always been dictated to us by the church and state. So we wanted to take it back and we wanted to look at the mother archetype and, and reimagine her for the 21st century. So I worked with an amazing uh, photographic team. Miriam Reand is a a photographer based in West Clare and her conceptual artist collaborator extraordinaire Anya O'Brien and we commissioned these series of images. Now this image had already been created and I spotted it. I was introduced to it by Susan Quirk, a good friend of mine. Um, it's the breastfeeding Madonna. Now you'd ask why the breastfeeding Madonna? Would you believe the, the natural breastfeeding mother Madonna was normal in church art until the 15th century when the church burnt the art when they burnt the witches at the stake. And then Mother Mary became very demure and she was all covered up and there was nothing, you know, the natural aspect of being a mother was, was covered up forevermore. So that's why the girls created this image. They wanted to respond to the mother and baby home scandal. And, and, and they spent a lot of time in tomb and they read the stories and they said, we just, we, we need to take her back. We need to take back the Madonna. She's our goddess, you know? So this is uh, Hildy and her little baby girl. So it's a little baby girl. Her fists are pumping. She's ready to take on the patriarchy. She's absolutely formidable little baby girl. You wouldn't mess with her. And there's a look at defiance there, but it's also very respectful. It's not really a dig at the church either. It's, this, this is about women taking back our sovereignty and our power and our archetypes. You know, if you study psychology and archetypes, it's really important that we reclaim them. And every artist obviously will interpret this differently. This is how Miriam and Anya approached it. And we want to continue this process as well with, with other, especially with the Celtic archetypes too. So this is the adoration of the mother. And it's the true story of a mixed race family from West Clare. This is Joanna and her son. There's a very poignant, powerful story behind this image. Joanna was researching her family history and she discovered that she had a brother who she'd never met before. And he was mixed race. And the reason why she never met him was because her mother felt that she couldn't return home to Ireland with her son. This is back in the 60s in Ireland. 
she just felt he would never be accepted into Irish society because we weren't that open and progressive at the time. So she thought it best actually for her, her son to return from London back to Africa with her with, with his father. And she never saw her, her son again and Joanna never met her little brother. But one generation on, Joanna has a fantastic relationship with her son. And she's now experiencing a very different modern, contemporary, inclusive Ireland. So just amazing to see the progression in one year in this image and for them to go on a journey of creating this image together as mother and son. It was hugely healing. Um, you can read there's a very powerful photo essay on our website called Sovereignty about this project series, this, this photographic series. And then this is Nadine Reed, um, and she's in the Liberties in Dublin. She's embodying Mother Creation, the Black Madonna, who was, of course, a, you know, a huge archetype in early Christian iconography. And she's just she's a huge heart and amazing energy. And was, it was really special to have her involved in the project. Um, this is Trish. Trish is um, a very proud traveller woman. Herself and her four siblings, would you believe, they were all sent to an industrial school. They were taken from their mother. And she sings to heal the trauma from her experiences. So she was singing through this whole shoot, um, shot in West Clare during the pandemic. And behind, behind her is a beautiful hawthorn tree and Anya O'Brien decorated the tree with ribbons and every single ribbon represents a child that died at June, mother and baby home. So. Again, that's another, it's another um, biblical symbol, the, the, the tree on flame, in flame on fire, um, and the catharsis of, of um, acknowledging those, those children. Um, this is Trish, and this, the, the bare branch that represents the loss of a child, and just how traumatic that is, and how one's life can feel just stripped bare, really. And this is um, Bridget, the triple goddess, three generations of an Irish Indian family, uh, from West Clare as well. So really multicultural inclusive diverse project i'm looking forward to continuing this series so what we did was we went on um i suppose it was a it was a pilgrimage of light and we journeyed right into the heart heart of ireland to heal the heartbreak and this is we started the jealous wall in um in belvedere house and gardens it's a the oldest folly in our oldest was the, it's the biggest folly in ireland and um a very jealous uh husband um, built this folly to block his wife from looking out at his brother's house because she preferred the other brother. So it's quite, quite a history plan. I thought it was kind of ironic, you know, because it's all about coercion and control and very much what women have been facing. So we lit up these really iconic buildings. And I just felt very strongly that as well with the survivors that we illuminate, we would illuminate them as well on castles and museums, that not just the buildings where they suffered too. So we, we lit up Galway City Museum. This is the creative team behind the beautiful artworks. And we also journeyed to um, Sean Ross Abbey in Ross Grey, that was our final stopping point. And we illuminated the names of all the babies who died in Vesper Mother and Baby Home. This is the very iconic commemorative um, front cover from the Irish Examiner on the 30th of January. So the editor gave us permission to use the image. And it was just, we, we scrolled all the names. You'll see it in a second. It was just hugely cathartic. And just to, to witness, to bear witness to their names, to see the baby's names made visible. And, and Athlone Castle, I just felt very strongly that we had to light up castles as well um, to give them the royal treatment that they never received when they were alive. So yeah, it was a very healing project. This um, ruffled the feathers of the Iona Institute, one of my proudest moments of my career. When you know, when you're winding up the Iona Institute, you know you're doing something right. <laughs> this is Catherine Corliss, of course, the legendary activist and um, historian. Beautiful, beautiful soul. And she's, I suppose, she's 
facilitated this moment of healing for Ireland, this moment of, of catharsis and um, bless her, she's just such a national treasure. These photographs were, um, were taken by Karen Morgan and they're photographs of survivors. Um, and they're really poignant and powerful because she's really captured their eyes, the depth, their, their life experience. This um, is Peggy. She actually adopted a child, a little boy from a mother and baby. And you can see the beautiful light and warmth in her eyes. She's just a beautiful, beautiful person. And I wanted to make them very visible because when you talk to the survivors and any of these been affected by the mother and baby homes, their biggest fear is actually that they will become invisible. So um, that's why we made sure that their eyes would be, yeah, really, really macro. And um, this is part of a project, by the way, um, curated by uh, Alison O'Reilly and Rachel Kyo. It's called a Stay With Me show. They've been activists involved in the project from the beginning. Alison is the journalist who worked with Catherine Corliss to blow the whistle on, um, on the mother and baby homes um, back in 2014. So they've been doing Trojan work. I would really recommend checking out the Stay With Me show. This is Rose. She was um, the youngest uh, woman to be incarcerated in True Mother and Baby Home. She was sent there when she was 13. She had three children there. You can see in her eyes, she's just experienced so much. An incredible activist in her own right. And this is Sharon. And for me, Sharon, actually, um, her story is very poignant and personal because Sharon's uh, baby was taken from her and uh, put up for adoption in 1986. And that's the year that I was born. And truth be told, I was actually born illegitimate. So I could have been sent to mother and baby home. Only my mother fought really hard to keep me. And my mum was very lucky. She actually was in Germany. Well, luck or bad luck however you look, I suppose, but she was in Germany on Erasmus and she went to go on the pill and the doctor said, sorry, you're too late. Do you want an abortion? And she said, oh God, no, I couldn't do that. I'm an Irish Catholic. And he said, well, I'm a Polish Catholic. I do that all the time. So um, she dug her heels in and she kept me. And I, I suppose we're test, testament to, uh, I think, the power of love and just the, the proof that if you do support a young mother and her child, there's no stopping them. So it's terrible. This is terribly poignant to hear Sharon's story because it could have been us. And um, we read so many stories. My mum and I, we drove together across the country to do this light show and it was a hugely healing experience to witness the stories. And we also have survivors in our team as well, a first and second generation survivors. So it was a hugely pro personal process over, over three, four months um, from when the government announced the legislation to seal the archive, which I still can't get my head around. But this is me and my mom here. And the minute I was born, I was, I was breaking the rules and um, shaking the system. And uh, yeah, we've been on quite a journey together. Like it hasn't been easy, but there's, you know, I think she was a young mom and we grew up together and like, you know, my, our families were really supportive and my dad was great as well. So it just shows you what's possible, I think, you know, and the church's excuse, I was just horrendous to read, like how they justified the, the high mortality rate, they said that the children who were illegitimate were physically and um, intellectually inferior. Well, I tell you, my box of All-Ireland medals and my school reports would uh, defunct that perverse myth. <laughs> Here I am graduating with first class honours. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so quite a process. And we had a very funny moment actually back in, um, this is back in 2018, we were invited to the Arsenal for International Women's Day and we got to meet with Sabina and Alice, her daughter, Alice Mary. And uh, Sabina noticed my mum was quite young. She said, oh, there's a story behind this. I want to hear it. You're such a young mum. And we told the story. 
and she really enjoyed it. And it was just before the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. She said, whatever you do, don't tell the other side that story. So we had a great giggle. Um, and of course, all three generations of my, of my uh, mother's line, we all voted to repeal the Eighth. That was a no-brainer. Uh, so I'm just going to show you the, the video that we created. Beautiful film about the light show. hugely healing process and wonderful to get the feedback from survivors um it's been a big part of their healing journey to be to be witnessed and to be made visible on irish landmarks and um one woman actually said she couldn't cry she hadn't been able to cry about her experience in the mother baby but finally she could when she saw the light show so that's really amazing and we lo we're looking to take the light show next to dublin and to light up uh, the GPO and other buildings in honour of the survivors, but we want to wait until the pandemic is, is finished so that they can attend in person to witness it in person, I think would be very healing for them too. So that could be the next part of the journey, hopefully early next year. So I'd just like to quickly introduce you then to our new project, um, which has been 12 years in the making. I did my degree thesis on deconstructing colonial ideologies and racial stereotyping. It was an insomnia inducing process and um, my God, the experience still haunts me to this day. Um, so I wanted to put that thesis into action to do to create a creative project that would respond to my research and it took me 12 years but I finally we finally cracked it. So um, another big inspiration behind the project I suppose is my, my school experience. I went to Wilson's Hospital School in the middle of nowhere in rural Ireland and I was blessed because it was a, an enlightened education to be honest. Um, 29 nationalities attended this school. Um, the only continents not represented were the Arctic and Antarctica. 
So multiculturalism, multiculturalism was normal. And in this dynamic, I suppose, the question where are you from was never racist because everybody was different. And I was a Catholic in, in, in a Protestant school. So I was an outsider. And then the Protestants were a minority in the Republic. So everybody was an outsider and there was no normal. There was no trying to fit in because there's nothing to fit into. So you could be different and it was celebrated. And I, I actually had escaped from an all girls convent. I was bullied out of um, Loretto Mullingar. I was a sensitive, quiet, would you believe, relatively quiet teenager. And I, I escaped out of the convent and went and did my junior certain in Wilson's. And um, it was a really profound experience um, because it was, it was the opposite of being different was, you know, a threat and, you know, you're bullied for it in one school and then you were celebrated for it in the next school. But I got a glimpse, I suppose, of what Ireland could be like if we were a thriving, progressive, inclusive, multicultural society. And it was amazing. Like we were all the richer for it. It was really stunning. So like I said, I did my degree thesis. I wrote it actually during Obama's um, historic presidential campaign, which made it all the more poignant and powerful. And then I think, you know, part of the research um, process was just to remember, you know, there's this big buzzword called diversity at the moment. It's not a modern buzzword. It is an ancient truth. We are fundamentally a migratory species. This is a National Geographic map of the early migratory patterns of early, early humans. Long before the wheel was ever invented, these that's this is our, our you know our, our patterns of movement across the world. So, um, just a bit of a reality check <laughs> on the on the real the real truths, the big insights. We are a fundamentally one humanity as well. A lot of the divisions, the polarities are constructed from colonialism. They need to be deconstructed because they are you know creating a lot of um conflict and unnecessary conflict um in the world it's really bonkers if you ask me so i was working in advertising for two years in london and paris again really thriving in two very multicultural cities and i took a career break i was supposed to go to new york i went to kenya instead and I had a really profound experience working on the four generations project it was developed by oxford and stanford universities and it was about well, about preserving and evolving tribal cultures where it gave the power to the tribal and the children the next generation of the tribes to write the future of their of their tribe whilst also um preserving the key elements that were really important but they had to evolve too you know obviously female gender mutilation certain aspects you know were not conducive to a healthy future so this is cookie galman she wrote the book i dreamed of africa it's a penguin bestseller and i got to work with her herself and her daughter they're called the two lionesses in, in africa they're very famous brilliant women and then from there i started her story and from day one i, I reached out to a kidwa they're the Ireland's first ever national migrant women's organization. They're absolutely amazing. Salome, you'll never hear her story because she's so busy getting on with the job that she never gets the spot like she deserves. So myself and Salome, our stories are actually paralleled in, in the movement project. And the project, this is our portrait here by Zabaj Kariko. The project movement basically parallels the stories of an emigrant and an immigrant side by side. And they're paired, they're matched by common humanity themes. So both myself and Salome, have founded women's empowerment organizations. We have a really special interest in women's role in peace building and security around the world and in Northern Ireland. And we both have a love of Kenya. She's luckily from Kenya. I love, I just adore her country. It's probably my favorite country on the planet. And I'm wearing there, it's a, it's a Maasai headdress. My dad thinks I'm being trying to be 1960s hippie, but actually is a real ceremonial headdress that I have in my wardrobe. <laughs> And we're doing the first phase launch there um, on International Women's Day. So we're running a school art competition for students to create portraits of their migrant heroines. Of course, could be diaspora, um, heroines from their family, a woman from their local community or somebody, some story they found online. And the closing date is the 15th of May. 
And we're also running school workshops as well. And there's a series of parallel stories that you can read on the Her Story website. This is Sally Mulready and Margaret Stevens. And these are a series of portraits that we've just received in from our Egyptian partner. So it's a project that we created across the Euro-Mediterranean region with the Anna Lind Foundation. So we've got partners in Egypt, in Palestine, the Czech Republic and Slovenia. And our Egyptian partner is Charisma for Arts. And these some beautiful portraits that we received. So phase two will launch on her story's fifth birthday on the 25th of May, which is also Africa Day. And there will be an international exhibition, unfortunately just online for now, but at least it will be out there. And there's going to be a spectacular light show and melting pot events. There's going to be a parallel peace project with Palestine and Northern Ireland and a fabulous direct provision empowerment program. So such so some of the stories here. Mary Harney is one of my all time heroines. She is a survivor of Vesper, a mother and baby home when the death rate was, I think it was 82 percent. She's just a Trojan um indestructible she's just graduated here um uh with her llm from nuig um her masters and she is an amazing activist and academic her story is actually one of the most popular on our website it's more popular than many of the tv series heroines um she's just she's just indestructible um to heal the trauma from her experience in the mother and baby home she wrote a very witty satire called uh, Sister Superior Virgin on the Ridiculous, and she performed it all across the US. It's a satire about the nuns, it's priceless. So comedy, of course, being a hugely cathartic and healing too. Another art form that I highly recommend. And her, her story is paralleled with Ifra Ahmed, who is an Irish Somali activist. She campaigns against female gender mutilation. She's only my age, she's already had a feature film made about her story. And both women have they experienced extraordinary, like unimaginable childhood traumas. And they channel their experiences and heals through their experiences to then become trailblazing activists. So you can read their stories on our website. And uh, yeah, there's Ifra illuminating the GPO. So that's the grand finale for me for today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for that, Melanie. Um, that was such a great start to our programme. And I think leads really nicely into our next speaker, um, So who is Professor Lindsay Erna Byrne. Um, professor Erna Byrne is a professor of Irish gender history at University College Cork, and her research has focused on issues of healthcare, sexual violence, abortion, unmarried mothers, and poverty and welfare in Ireland. And um, her work really prioritizes personal narratives and ordinary experiences. So we're really delighted to have her here today. Thank you. I'll do the first smart thing and unmute myself, which is uh, the first thing I usually forget to do. Um, uh, that's a hell of a presentation to follow, um, but bizarrely, actually, yeah, they're, they're very compatible. I'll be coming at something similar from a different perspective. Um, just to say that, um, as Marie said there, I started looking at the history of the treatment of unmarried mothers in 1997 um, when I read about the closure of a Magdalene Asylum, and I thought, what the hell is that? And read all about it and couldn't believe that this thing was so near me and where I actually was living at the time, but also in terms of history. Um, and I had a I had a time convincing people that was a topic for historical research. Um, and I did my, my PhD and I published it. And the last half of it is about the treatment of unmarried mothers. And that kind of sat there really from 2007 until 2014. There was finally an interest in, in, in what, what that history revealed. 
Um, and it's, it's just interesting to me the timing, when we become interested and when we can see and when we can't see and what we can't see. And that's the thing that really, really interests me as a historian and always has, I think because my formative experiences was something that was right beside me that I hadn't seen. Um, so I just want to, 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 to tell a little story uh, and make an argument for the fact that that is the story that we should be trying to tell um, as certainly as historians. Um, so I want to begin with a small ad that was placed in the Connacht Tribune in 1928, which read as following. On Thursday morning, a young woman inmate of the Magdalen Asylum, Galway, whose name was stated to be unknown, escaped from the institution. She is described as being aged about 25 years, wearing a black skirt, and had a slight stoppage in her speech. In so many ways, this small little snippet of a day in the life of Ireland in the late 1920s tells us so much about the status of women, the power of institutions, and how so much of our brutal treatment of women and children was carried out in plain sight. This strange breed of a young woman inmate doesn't even warrant the very basic ingredients of a biography. The only distinguishing feature of certainty was her slight stoppage of speech. And if we pause just for a minute to think about the life obscured in this ad and the world revealed, we, need, we get the sense, I think, of how much we need to rethink the history that we're writing. And a couple of things that sprung to mind when I read this, when I came across such a small little ad in the newspaper, was how could anyone place the ad without knowing her name? And how could the person have taken the ad without saying, I need a name? How long had she been in the asylum if she was 25 at the time of this ad? Well, close to 25, can we even be anywhere sure that that was her age? If she was close to 25, on what legal basis were they holding her? She was an adult. Um, was that stoppage in her speech? Was that the thing that got her singled out? Was that the reason why she was rendered different? It took that little, I've come across plenty of cases. Did they catch her? Did anyone ever remember her name and record either her life or death? In making a run for it, she pierced briefly the sanctimonious world of morality, of moral certainty, if you like, that Ireland was building on backs such as hers. And as a historian, I've always felt I owe it to her, to document her and her world. I know that Ireland did recapture her and thousands like her, and that we held her without any legal validity, not to mention any moral basis, for as long as we liked, because that was our power, and in that uncertainty lay the real cruelty of it. People didn't know how long they were going to be held. That's the basic minimum you give a prisoner, right? Is a term when their sentence is gonna to come to an end. I know that we didn't give her a history and that despite knowing the bones of her story, the bricks of her confinement, the ideology behind her incarceration, we didn't change the history we have given ourselves. We still have not inscribed her life or her death in our history. The master narrative remains largely unyielding and indifferent to her, no matter how much research comes out about women's history or about this issue. There are moments of social audit, if you like, and history always plays a central role in these moments. And I think we're currently experiencing one. I think it's pretty safe to say that. Um, and this period of self-reflection has revolved around the nation's treatment of women and children, in particular at the moment in mother and baby homes. I think it's no coincidence that we've come to focus on the treatment of this particular group because the systematic demonization of the unmarried mother since the mid 19th century, they were a long time working at this script, was symptomatic of a wider system of structural violence in which all women were contingent actors, their belonging depending on their sexual behavior. Not only could any woman have been sent to either a Magdalene Asylum or a mother and baby home, 
but that she could have been held there against her will and sometimes against her family's will. I found plenty of letters in the archives where mothers are looking for where their daughter is and don't know what, what asylum they're in. This, as we can see from the ad I started with, was played out in full sight of the nation because it was supposed to act as a warning to other mothers, to other women. Can you imagine how many women read that ad and shivered with the fear that they might be next or the relief that it wasn't them? However, it was accepted as somehow inevitable as the way things were. And I think that's what's really interesting is to try to get at why there was such a collective acceptance of that, why it was so difficult to, to respond in a different way. The concept of the unmarried mother was invented, and I think that's important to say as well. And by that, I mean, it took a process to remove her from outside the idea of the family and to create a caricature around her that problematized her. Before the mid 19th century, there's no clear evidence that that's what was happening. But as you go into kind of a development of a much more nuclear family, if you like, a family with harder edges around, that has a much clearer narrative in terms of the social role it needs to play in a society, you get a greater sense of the members that can't belong and the reasons why you might be excluded. It was deemed necessary to draw up the parameters of respectability during the 19th century and sexuality and appropriate gender roles was central, not peripheral to that project. The Irish nation in waiting wanted access to the power respectability brought. And in many respects, that nation would do a better job than Victorian Britain in performing and policing respectability. And that's why I found Melanie's talk about colonialization really, really interesting about the power of these ideas and where they, where they get rooted and that they're actually, they're, they're beyond the Catholic church. They're, they're a broader way of thinking. The Catholic church, of course, was a huge enabler, but this ideology goes beyond it. Isolating women who were deemed not to conform uh, from the family, which became known as the organic unit of society, was an important step in the project of respectability. This is how the concept of the unmarried mother problem, and I have that in capital letters in my script because that's literally how it appears in many of the articles that, that are being written between 1920 and 1923, where you can see this young state discussing itself. And the unmarried mother problem comes into view and it sort of comes to represent the anxieties that this new state has about the way in which it's going to shape out its future as an Irish nation. And she becomes then this figure that doesn't fit. She represents what happens to you when you don't fit. And she sort of is the, the, the defining uh, trope, if you like, um, of, de of deviance. She doesn't fit in the family. And it's not just that she doesn't fit in the family, she undermines it um, and, and endangers the standing of all other members. And I think that's something that's really important to understand that the parents feared all the other members would be uh, what the term they used is contaminated by association. That's exactly the kind of language that they, that they were using. For a family to be proved respectable, it had to be willing to banish this member. And um, that, that was the way in which you uh, affirmed your status. Secondly, she had to be seen as deviant, her behavior as a threat to the nation and as morally repugnant, a word again they use very often. In a culture which placed a premium on land and property ownership, my father worked for the bank and he always says, follow the money, and he's not wrong a lot of the time. Um, it didn't take much for, to rationalize something that could be construed as a threat to that structure. And that structure was really reliant on family structure and inheritance and people knowing exactly, and that's where the word legitimate is a legal concept, right? That's where it comes from, that, 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 even that idea. Deviance and marginality tells us a good deal about where political power lies. And I think that's why this is actually not peripheral, but central to the way in which we should be writing modern Irish history. Cydia Hartman, who has done so much in reclaiming black history, and in particular the history of black women slaves, 
asks the question that I think modern Irish history needs to contemplate. How, she asks, does one revisit the scene of subjugation without replicating the grammar of violence? And in this Irish context, I think one clear way to avoid reinscribing the harm of the past is in the narrative of our history, in the narrative of our history, is by deconstructing the ecosystem of power upon which it's based, understanding the context in which people made decisions about their lives, rather than taking this kind of linear narrative, descriptive, and in which case people's behavior seems totally inexplicable to us. Um, and the only way we can understand, for example, how respectability became so important in defining the Irish nation, and therefore what kind of power it worked in, in social and political relationships is by understanding those power systems. Why were they there? Who did they service? And what was the effect of that power uh, on people at the margins? And how could things have been different? Who was in a position to act differently and who wasn't? It wasn't possible for all families to behave differently. In other words, this isn't just about the mechanics of the story, the A, B and C of the narrative, but also, and I think crucially, about the why of the history of the treatment of unmarried mothers in particular, why was it necessary to behave that way? And why did people buy into that idea? Because I think it's in, it unfolded in a particular social and political vortex, which profoundly shaped what was possible, to what degree people had the power to act differently. So I think we need to think about the why of our history and also why was the unmarried mother constructed as a problem? Because it was a deliberate decision to do so, that wasn't necessary. Why were, they, were, was so, were so many people convinced to partake in her ostracization as well? And why was it so hard to produce a counter narrative of inclusion and compassion? And I think those are really, really central questions that we need to be trying to address, certainly within my own discipline. To, to conclude, I think really reiterating Melanie's wonderful presentation at the beginning with much less light and grammar, light and, uh, and, and jazz, um, I think this is this is not a sideshow, this history, to the master narrative, to use a to word that I think is rather opportune in this moment. Um, I think, in fact, it underpins it. And as historians, we must ensure that it transforms the history that we're writing. And we haven't done that yet. That's me. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that, um, Professor Erna Byrne. Um, that was really a great, it was great to have your insights into such a topical issue and yeah, and just one that we really felt needed to be included on this year's panel. So it was great to hear all of that. Um, but yeah, so we're going to move on now to our next speaker, who is Dr. Nasha Duvari. Um, Dr. Duvari is a senior lecturer, the director of the Centre for Global Women's Studies, and the co-leader of the Gender and Public Policy Cluster in the Whitaker Institute in National University of Ireland, Galway. Um, she's an international development expert with more than 25 years of experience in gender development and empowerment. And her research has looked at issues such as gender-based violence, women's property rights, and the HIV crisis over a number of contexts. Um, she's also worked with organizations such as UN Women, um, UNFPA, uh, the World Health Organization, and the World Bank. So we're really delighted to have her here with us tonight. Thank you very much. Um, the two presentations we just heard have been really insightful and very energizing. But I wanted to focus on a, the story of one woman from India. And I think it's very important that as we celebrate Women's History Month, that understanding the life of one woman from the lowest strata of Indian society in pre-independent India 
who became one of the central figures in the shaping of the Indian constitution between 1946 and 49 is important to illuminate. Um, the drafting of the Indian constitution comes 10 years after that of the Irish constitution in 1937. In Ireland, both the first constitution of the Irish Free State and the subsequent 1937 constitution were drafted by a small committee of men comprising primarily civil servants with significant input from the Catholic Church behind closed doors. Though women were very active in the independence movement, they were not at the drafting table. In India, however, given the leadership of Gandhi in the national movement and his commitment to draw a multitude of voices across the breadth of India, crossing religion, language, and cultural differences, the National Congress and others in the movement pressed the British for the formation of the Constituent Assembly, which took the task of drafting the Indian Constitution over a period stretching from 1946 to 1949. The Constituent Assembly functioned as the first parliament after independence was declared on August 15, 1947, what Nehru called India's midnight tryst with destiny. Following the British, the right of women to vote and contest elections had been implemented in the 1920s. So to the Constituent Assembly of 299 members that were elected from different provincial assemblies, 15 women were elected across different states, religions, and class backgrounds. Among these was Dakshyani Valaithan, at the age of 34, one of the youngest members of the assembly and the only Dalit woman representative. In the Indian caste system, I'm sure some of you have some knowledge of this, Dalits are in that period known as untouchables or depressed classes were at the bottom of the, of the hierarchy and were considered to be unclean. Very similar to some of the uh, subordination of women in Ireland and their sexuality. Dakshani belonged to this community in the state of Kerala and members of her community were discriminated against. Women were not allowed to wear uh, garments on their upper bodies. They had no access to public roads. They could not go into a government school. They had to give way to the upper caste. In fact, the rule was that their shadow could not touch the shadow of a man or a woman from the highest caste, the Brahmins and called Namudris in Kerala. She grew up in a time of change though, and her family, father, uncles, and brothers had begun to mobilize to fight for equality and justice. There was a, a, a very deep social reform movement that had started. Her father ran a school with no pay from their house and worked as a laborer in the fields for a living. Dakshani became the first person from the community, from her community, to get an education and wear an upper cloth. In fact, she was the first Dalit woman in her state to have a degree. She fought for the rights of Dalit folks to use public spaces just the way the upper caste do.
she went to school uh, and took a ferry and walked a couple of hours to the school and back. And it was in those walks that she dared to walk on the road rather than step aside when a upper caste man or woman met her. She went on to do her bachelor's in chemistry from Maharaja's College in Ernakulam, and she was the only girl in class. Despite being in a new environment and having some social status, she still faced the severe discrimination that Dalits faced. One particular professor refused to let her touch the lab equipment because she was unclean. She had to watch the experiments from afar. That didn't stop her though, nothing quite did. She graduated with a high second class in 1935 and went for a teacher's training course in Madras, which is uh, 400, 500 kilometers from where she lived. Then she was employed as a teacher back in Cochin. And once again, while she had social status as a teacher, she still faced significant discrimination. For instance, she could not draw water from the well in the compound where she was renting a, a room. Her mother, however, had converted to Christianity and she did not face such social sanction. So because the mother was with her, she could get water. But why did Dakshani not convert? The interesting thing is that the government in that region at that time, when she was a child, had started free education for Dalits. And so the family opted to provide education to two of their children, Dakshani and her brother. And so they did not convert the two children. And because of her education, she was able to stand for election first in the assembly for Cochin and then for the provincial assembly in Madras from where she was elected to the constituent assembly. As I said, there were 15 women who were elected and these women helped draft the constitution of India and worked to ensure that social, economic and political inequalities were addressed. One of the first actions of the assembly was to establish universal adult suffrage, eliminating the gender, income, property, and educational restrictions on voting. The assembly also passed legally enforceable statutes to protect fundamental rights, such as guaranteeing equality and equal opportunity for men and women, and eliminating discrimination on the basis of caste, race, religion, or sex by either the government or an employer and banning untouchability. Dakshiani's contribution was particularly important in terms of advancing Article 11, which, outlaws, which outlawed untouchability. She worked with Gandhi and lived at his ashram to mobilize Dalits across uh, Gujarat. She had passionately argued with Dr. Ambaker, who was a Dalit lawyer and called the father of the Indian constitution, that we cannot expect a constitution without a clause relating to untouch untouchability. In fact, Dakshiani made one of the most pertinent points about social justice when she said that the constitution should inspire people to change their morality and how they treat others while speaking about the abolition of untouchability. 
She said, the working of the constitution will depend on how the people will conduct themselves in the future, not on the actual execution of the law. She articulated a clear recognition that constitution provides a framework, but that true social justice can be only realized through community action. Her contribution to the framing of Article 11, as well as the other articles of equality in the, in the Constitution, is now being recognized widely as particularly important. She continued her work in the later years on the formation of an All India Dalit Women's Platform. This intervention took place as a transformation of the constitutional safeguards for Dalits a legacy of Ambedkar and Dakshiani had turned into mere electoral politics. She recognized the need for struggles for land, food, higher wages, and against caste violence, and particularly violence against women. The All India Dalit Women's Platform took an intersectional view of Dalit women. Continuation of the discrimination against them as a social group but equally the oppression of women within the Dalit community and the class, class solidarity of poor Dalit women with other working classes. And this has been a very important intervention that she made to bring to light this intersectional perspective, which is the lived reality of every individual long before we had the, the terms and the concepts as such. She continued her resistance to the day she died by not walking with shoulders bent as was expected in her childhood or making way for upper caste in any forum. I just want to share um, a few pictures of her. Anyway, I had some pictures of her because one of the most interesting things with Dakshiani uh, was that she was married in Gandhi's ashram with Gandhi and his wife blessing her, which was a big deal. And this is in 1940. And she married a, a Dalit leader who then was the uncle of a man who became the president of India. So she comes from a family that through the struggle had reached uh, a, a level of prominence in India that is unheard of for a Dalit family. So I just wanted to share this small story because we often, um, outside of India, such people are not known. Yeah, that was a really excellent talk and a really interesting um, biography of a woman that, yeah, I'd say many of us here had not much familiarity with. So thank you so much. Um, Margot, I think you're going to introduce our final speaker. Uh, yes, thank you so much for that, that speech. I thought it was very inspiring, the kind of bottom-up solutions and revolution that it takes um, of communities as well. Um, anyway, I will move on to our final speaker for the evening, um, who is Blahin Jaburka. Um, she is an acclaimed intersectional feminist comic, presenter, media personality, and podcaster who has appeared on RTE, BBC, um, TG4, and in comedy sketches across YouTube. She is one half of the I Don't Know Her podcast, 
and her show on intersectional feminism, blah, 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 with special guests at the 2019 Dublin Fringe was nominated for the Little Gem Award. Um, bringing light to the struggles of being a woman in the 21st century, her fierce wish unleashes an, a refreshing perspective on feminism scattered with self-deprecation and mischief. Um, and with that, I will hand the mic off to you, Blaheen. Great, thank you very much. Um, I First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. And I suppose I have to kind of like put a warning on my stuff. I am a comedian first and foremost. So although these are very serious topics and I agree, there's going to be some jokes um, and I hope that that's okay. Um, so let me just, I've got my Google Doc open here. Hope that's all right. I'm going to read, read out. I'm going to get rid of you, get rid of me so I can't see me. Um, and let's go. Let's talk about sex work or as I like to call it, women with jobs. Um, so it used to be that this was kind of a frowned upon narrow profession. It was thought to be anything from shameful to dangerous to exploitative to witchery by lots of people who somehow managed uh, to have their noses both up in the air and burrowing around in the patriarchy's arse, which is interesting. So even though it's widely acclaimed as like one of the oldest professions in the world, it's still seen as dirty and desperate. And for those only either with no morals, no ambition or no choice. Um, but in today's world of OnlyFans and Free the Nipple and ethical porn movements and accountability culture, female empowerment, we are seeing a sexual revolution and an era where women are taking back control of our bodies and what we do with them. And we're even redefining what constitutes work for them. So like, I mean, after all, how is having consensual sex and being paid for it anymore selling your body than working on a mine, let's say, or even in an office? Um, I suppose that's more of a question to do with capitalism than anything else, but and we only have so much time. Um, uh, but capitalism is fueled by misogyny, ableism, and white supremacy, just FYI, but I digress. Um, now, don't get me wrong, uh, the concept of sex work and the notion of refusing to, ashamed, to be ashamed of being a woman in charge of her own sexuality, body, career, and money is nothing new at all. So even if we just focus on Ireland alone, we have plenty of notable and legendary whores from Molly Malone with her cockles and muscles to uh, Dirkus Darkey Kelly, whose public execution in 1746 caused other sex workers to riot in the street at the blatant sexism that was rampant at the time. And I mean, fair enough, she is said to have murdered at least five men, but Darkey didn't actually even go down for that. Rather, she was hung and burned for witchcraft after she had the audacity to name the father of her baby, who just so happened to be the sheriff of Dublin at the time. Um, and legend goes that he murdered the baby in a satanic ritual, blamed it on Darkey, and then had her burned for witchcraft. Um, but she did also kill some fools. But hey, uh, the, the woman who inspired me for tonight's talk uh, was a sex worker around the same time. In fact, she was the self-made madam of a brothel in Dublin for many years in the 1700s. Um, her name's Peg Plunkett. And Peg Plunkett was a whore, yes, um, and a mother and a woman and a fucking legend, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I love her so much that in my research over the past few days, I was compelled to find her memoirs, which we will come back to, oh, we will. Um, I was compelled to try and find them online and they're not really available. But, and then I was trying to at least buy her biography, which is largely informed by those memoirs, uh, which is Julie Peekman's Peg Plunkett Memoirs of an Irish Whore. Um, and I'm not even a good reader. Like if I did get it, it would surely just end up sitting on my shelf collecting dust alongside the full works of Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, which was gifted to me by a lovely, well-meaning man that I 
dumped before he had the chance to tell me that he'd bought me something uh but after he had already written a lovely message in the front so I got it and I know I'm the worst for that um but the book seems to be sold out everywhere I can't find the memoirs anywhere um but I do want it uh whether I'll stay still for long enough to read it or not just so that I can sit her up there next to another all-knowing face of another extraordinary woman with a life so interesting that it's still remembered long after her death and yet still not talked about near enough so let me tell you. Um, so Peg Plunkett was born Margaret Plunkett to a wealthy family around 1727. Now I say around because uh, the year of her birth is actually contested. So some writings put her birth nine years later in 1736 uh, with Julie Peakman, the author of the biography, believing that she was born in 1742. So she could have been 70, 61 or 55 when she died. She just kind of kept it vague, which is like iconic. Um, but anyway, she was born to a wealthy and well-connected family as one of 22 children. Um, and things were okay as things go in the 1700s. She was one of the eight that survived childhood and they lived comfortably enough until her brother Christopher took over as the head of the household after their mother's death. Now, at a time where male relatives were supposed to be the protectors of the women in their family, um, presumably having to protect them from other women's male relatives who were supposed to protect them from, like you get what I'm saying, like he wasn't sound and uh, Me Too hadn't quite happened yet. So she had to flee from his violence and to do this, she elected to find a husband. So she did find a man and he did promise marriage, yay. But uh, men break promises, ha. Uh, not all men, of course, uh, but definitely this man. And poor, desperate Margaret fell pregnant out of wedlock. And we've all seen Bridgerton, so we know how much of a no-no that was. Um, and she lost everything. Now she was kept by this child's father until the child died. Uh, I cannot stress enough how shitty the 18th century was for child mortality, like bad. Um, and the father had actually lost his reputation and the respect of all his peers as well. Equality, I guess. Um, so he had no use for her. And so she was destitute and she was back relying on the support of men. And one of the men in particular, she kind of chills with for some time. And although they never marry, she does take to using his last name, Leeson. Um, and it's believed that this was Joseph Leeson II. So he was the first Earl of Milltown, a former MP for Thomastown, a self-styled Viscount of Rusborough. He had loads of fancy titles, okay? But my point is she just took his name like as compensation for her time or something, which is pretty rad because she was seeing other men. She fell in love with one, she ended up having more kids and all. And obviously don't get attached to the kids. Spoiler alert, they all died. Um, sorry. <laughs> and later on, Plunkett, or Leeson, as it were, uh, became the head of her own household when she started her first brothel with her friend Sally Hayes, presumably another real one, in Drogheda Street in Dublin 8. So around this time, there were a few little gangs about the place, such as the Ormond Boys and the Liberty Boys, who were terrible people, but at least their names made sense based on their locations. Whereas there was another gang that was a thorn in Peg's side, and they were named... The Pinking Dindies, which I'm sorry, but it's the least intimidating gang name I've ever heard of. Not to get all like toxic masculinity or heteronormative or anything, but the Pinking Dindies should be the name of a non-binary pansexual cult or a band or something. Like not a gang in the 18th century in Dublin made up of like posh boys in cravats. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that kind of makes it worse as well because they were from the upper classes. They didn't even need to be in a gang. It doesn't make sense. Anyway. 
The Pinking Dindies uh, carried swords, which they used to intimidate and mug passersby pretty much just for sport. And they were known for visiting brothel brothels and stealing the booty from the workers there. And during one of these incidents, uh, the Dindy leader, uh, like Lord of the Dindies, uh, Richard Crosby, which to be fair is a name that I can't really slag, to be honest, it's kind of cool. But anyway, he was in Peg's brothel and he attacked her and that led to the miscarriage of the pregnancy that she had at the time and it caused the death of another one of her children. So here's where things get kind of boss bitch, okay? Our Peg took this scumbag to court in the 1700s and won. Um, so just to repeat that, okay? Because like imagine a world where you bring your attacker to court, you plead your case and he could have faced a murder charge but he was at very least found guilty and jailed for assaulting a woman because she stood up for herself and got support, which like must be nice, <laughs> different times. Um, but this is the thing, right? So Peg, Peg became known for this, for being like tenacious and determined in taking down toxic men. So on more than one occasion, she took her abusers and attackers to the courts and she won more times than you'd expect, uh, not least because she had the support and respect of her peers and neighbors because of the footfall her establishment brought to the local shops and other businesses. But they believed her and they stood behind her when she was victimized by the patriarchal society of rape culture and violence and exploitation of women at the time, which is an alien concept even today. Um, but wait, there's more. Uh, so our heroine, Peg, uh, retired after 30 years running the brothel to go and live in Black Rock, well for some. And she just a few years before her death, which was in 1796, or sorry, 97, she started writing and publishing her memoirs. So this is already fabulous enough. There wasn't many like female authors of the time. So it's already fab before you even add to it the fact that she used these writings as an opportunity to call out anyone who was slow to pay their debts to her or her girls. So anyone from her little back black book who was trying to get one over on her or shirking their bills risked being named and shamed publicly with details of their sexual penchants. And she pulled no punches even perhaps especially if they held high titles or ranks or if they were married, if they had a lot to lose. And she had a lot of clients with a lot to lose. Now, honorable men who behaved and had nothing to fear, knowing that they had not taken Peg Plunkett's power for granted, hashtag not all men, um, but those who, uh, they had nothing to fear, you know, but those who scorned her, left her high and dry or exploited her in any way were at a time when the majority of women had virtually no control or power in their lives, held accountable and made frightened and regretful for having wronged a little lady, which is, I suppose, one way of teaching them lesson. Now, these memoirs are to me, are like obviously a work of power and strength, of grace and poise and courage and resilience, but they're also like of wit and cheek and fun and vivacity. You know, like I really want to get my hands on these memoirs. Um, and also just before I move on about Peg, just as a last little thing, because I can't leave it out. She also once scoffed at the idea of being told to make way for a British monarch while in London. She reportedly said, I think part of the road was for my use as well as for that of the king. And if you English are servile and timid, we Irish are not. So, I mean, legend. Um, so where does that leave us? I think we still have a long ways to go for women's autonomy over our own bodies, not to be seen as an affront to the men. Um, considering the fact that only months ago, over 500 Irish men were found to have taken part in the non-consensual sharing of hundreds of thousands of images of women and girls, as in children, on various discard groups, uh, discord groups. 
Uh, many taken from sites like OnlyFans where the pictures were taken from behind a paywall. Many just a simple breach of trust by an ex-partner, but all were shared with a serves them right for sending their nudes in the first place kind of attitude. So I would say that rape culture is still alive and well as ever. Um, and evidently what we're learning these days with the advent of OnlyFans and, is, uh, and the shocking idea that people should be paid for making the content that people entertain themselves with in their private moments is that the commodification and sexualization of female bodies is only okay when the women have no control. It's only sexy when we don't consent to it being seen. And once we have autonomy or heaven forbid, capitalize on it as they have been, it's a cause for shame, humiliation, ridicule and punishment. When my friend Karina Fitzpatrick was being arrested at Knock and Stock in 2016 for having her tits out, topless men stood around, their nipples flowing free in the wind, untouched, inoffensive, powerful, as she stood in peaceful protest trying to claim her righteous share of that same power. And this power scares them, ladies, and that's why we must continue to seize it however we can, for it's ours, and it has been for long since, long before, Peg Plunkett wrote her memoirs that made the discord pricks of her time shake in their little incel boots. A standout sentence quoted in all the articles that I read about Peg calls out the still prevailing double standards of morality and relentless Madonna whore dichotomy that women are still forced with, uh, forced into in today's society. And it's where Peg writes, chastity, I willingly acknowledge, is one of the characteristic virtues of the female sex. But may I be allowed to ask, is it the only one? which I guess now we all have to tweet out tonight. Uh, that's me, Irvmeel Magov. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I think we're doing well on time here. Um, so we're going to go ahead and take a few questions from the audience. There's already four questions um, I have lined up right here. So I'll just jump right into it. Um, this first one is kind of um, for anyone who, who wishes to answer, but um, someone has asked, what can be done in Ireland on an academic and state level to promote an idea of Irish womanhood that is intersectional and inclusive? Obviously, that's a really like loaded question. There's lots to it, you know, and there's so many there's so many different answers. And I'm coming from it um, a very like, you know, uh, dogs in the street kind of standpoint, whereas we have actual academics that have studied this kind of stuff here. Um, so I'd be really interested to know what they have to say. But I think like a starting point would be, um, first of all, better sex education and consent education and in terms of like uh, not just making it about sex but relationships and empathy as well I think that when it comes to um like feminism intersectionality everything like can fall under the same thing or it should I mean if your feminism isn't inter intersectional then it's not feminism um I think when it really comes down to it it's people don't realize that the that the that the real like the, that the rape culture isn't just rape it's things like you know it's things like harassment it's things like um you know um i don't know approaching women in the street when they're they've got their fucking earphones in and shit like that um and i suppose so it's about like relationships and empathizing with people on a deeper level um, and i think if you if we have that kind of understanding from a really young age um you know talk to your talk to your kids uh if we have that understanding from a young age then it'll be way easier to just see women as people I mean I know that that's a crazy idea but like I think that it can be done um, and I think that that's kind of one of the places that it starts obviously there's a lot more to be done but I think that that's a foundational thing is from the start knowing about empathy relationships and how to and respect and consent 
I would agree if I can just get in there. And I think actually it's 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 in the comedy that we've just heard from Blahin as well. And it's in things like her story. Lots of really interesting things are happening. And I think it has to be at all those levels. It has to be, it has to saturate the culture. Um, and I do think that it requires within the academy where, where I would be, it requires a little bit of self-reflection. It requires the courage to call it out when you see it. And sometimes, and I have to say, I feel this after 20 years, it requires stating the obvious lots and lots of times and lots of different ways and lots of different places as colorfully and as entertaining and in so many ways as you can. But I think when you do see, um, when I see my, my undergraduates and, and young people, I have a lot of, a lot of hope. I think the other way too is with campaigning organizations, which have done such a brilliant job, things like Justice, Justice for Magdalene's and so on, have just kept calling power to account relentlessly, no matter how many times there's been an attempt to kind of characterize them um, as, you know, as, as left of field or crazy or whatever way they've been, they've been trying to characterize them. It's consistently keeping on going and just saying it again, again, in a different way, in a different form, and also supplying the evidence for it constantly and forcing us to reconsider what evidence is. And that evidence is in the stories that women have to tell and, the, and, and, and telling them and magnifying them. So I think, I think events like this, events like this are a perfect example. Yeah, I'd love to mirror what you're saying. Um, I think a big, big part of the puzzle for me was discovering the wealth of academic research, the quality of our, of our academics in Ireland, and then what get mixed into the mainstream culture and how it gets diluted and how academia and culture don't seem to talk to each other. And that's why I started her story. And there was a moment where I was like, well, who do I, who am I to start this? But if I don't, what's going to happen? Because the reality is, the Dictionary of Irish Biography has been, you know, it's houses over 1000 women's biographies and it's sitting there gathering dust. So if I don't do something, who is, who is? And I suppose that's the role of artists and, and you know, cultural um, mavericks to team up with academics and to find more opportunities for cross-pollination so that we can infiltrate and share ideas. Because I'm always mesmerized by the power of these events when we do come together. It's, it's just, it's mind blowing. It's just absolutely fascinating, such a rich experience. But it's then, it's, it's the role of the artist to take the insights from the academics and say, well, how can we bring this together and make an amazing animation or an amazing documentary series or a light show or whatever it is, you know? And that's, that's my call to all you students going forward is can you create more platforms and initiatives to create cross-pollination? Because the academic research is there. The, the expertise is there. It's amazing. Hmm. I just want to say one thing, which is, yes, the expertise is there. There has to be a better uh, dialogue between the activists and the expertise. But I think within the academia itself, the, the type of work that women academics do, which takes an intersectional framework, is often isolated. It's not getting into the mainstream within the academic discourse also. And that's another place that we do have to fight. And I think there it's the younger students by asking the questions in class, in raising a different viewpoint in class is where we can begin to uh, you know, move forward. It's not just the lonely researcher sitting in their room, but it's about how it is communicated in all platforms within the university. Because I'm very sorry, but in academia, intersectionality is not a basic principle on which we operate. 
thank you for all of your answers. And I'm supposed to go off of um, those thoughts that uh, Melanie and Nada just gave us. There was another question about the opportunities that new graduates could um, take up to help with the or with changing the public attitudes towards women's history. Um, if there is any specific opportunities or ideas you'd like to share. Well, I suppose, again, I mean, there's there's so much opportunity by by just raising your voice wherever you wherever you find yourself and whatever and to seeing this as something that has a place everywhere so no matter what you go into um professionally or what you seek to go into um in terms of women's history i think to go back to capitalism <laughs> i think if you show if you show people there's a market and there's an audience they will produce it and that and that's and that I found since from the beginning of my career to now when I started it was like well nobody really wants to know and da, da, da. I've had the most extraordinary things said to me about my history would I do something cheerful next time etc cetera, etc cetera, in the early stages that's not something that will be said now at all and largely that's because undergraduates came to do the course when I started teaching women's history 20 years ago I struggled to fill the reading list now I can't keep up with what's coming out. It's just so, so, so interesting, so creative and so innovative. So show them there's a demand by, by reading it, by, you know, going to see, see plays, go to see comedians, like, you know, show them that there's, that there's, that there's an interest in it because then you create this kind of critical mass. Um, but it's happening. I wouldn't despair at all. I would be really optimistic. I think it's never been a better time. Um, and, and I think that's because, because enough people can see that this is not going anywhere. We, we've, there's enough of us now joining up enough dots to figure out what's been going on and we're just gonna be noisy and annoying. I love it. I'd love to add to that actually as well. Like if students have ideas, if you've done a research project, you found a woman's story, come to me, share the story. Say, look, we wanna turn this into a comedy or a, you know, it was amazing hearing Blogging talk about Peg Plug, but she's one of my first heroines actually. God, it's like, that's five years ago now you're really rattling my memory but she's a fellow Westmead woman and I actually pitched the Nulas like I reached out to the, com the comedy group I said will you do a, a comedy on the, the three pegs because there's three pegs Peg Sarah's been the one that nobody wants to touch Peg Wolfington was the Meryl Streep of her day who was with the George Clooney of, of the day as well she's a contemporary of Peg Plunkett and then Plunkett the three I mean, you just, they'd make an epic comedy show with the three of them you know so always looking at innovative ideas um, don't be shy if you found research stories come to us please like we're always looking for more content and like we try and find the budget some way or another to make it happen um but don't be shy never be shy yeah um to return to professor erna byrne specifically um there's a question posed to you um what do you think is the best way academic historians can work with the public to repair damage caused by the recent report on the mother and baby homes Oh, yeah, really interesting question. I suppose it's it's the damage of of a century as well. It's a long history of 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 this. And I think, um, well, one of the ways is trying to disseminate the story in as many places as you can to talk about the origins of history of it. Because I think what's important to us is that it's the the power that kind of structured that kind of violence is not gone. That's that's the same culture that Blahin talked about in terms of rape myths. The, the very kind of parameters that conscribed women's lives in the 1920s and 1930s is there, still here. Um, and might just be different population groups or different vulnerable cohorts. So I think, for me, I think I, we do have a responsibility in showing the contemporary relevance of what we're doing. Because one of the, the interesting things about taking the long view, you can see that with Blahin's um, sketch on Peg there, when you go back and look 
at, at the sort of parameters in which you use, they're not that, I mean, essentially there's similar power dynamics going on. And the more times and more ways in which we can see them, the easier it becomes for us to try and decode their power. Um, and so I think that's, I think the really important thing is being available to do things like this, to produce work in ways that can be read and consumed, but also to, to work with activists, to work in many different platforms. And that's, that's something that's very, very new in, in the academy for me in the last sort of five, seven, eight years, maybe you'd find that. Previously, that didn't happen at all. We were all very much in our own silos. And I do think actually women's history has been really crucial in that because many women's historians were outside the academy. You know, they didn't necessarily work in history departments and so on. So they had to find different ways of working. And they've actually taught us an awful lot in terms of diversifying our own methodology. So, I mean, I suppose I should be asking for advice from people uh, about how to do it because, because clearly we haven't done as good a job as we, as we could do. So I'm all open to people uh, letting us know what more we could do. Um, to ask you, Melanie, there's a few questions here um, specifically for you. Um, what is the most specific, uh, or sorry, significant barrier her story has faced as an organization in getting public recognition? Um, and someone else wants to know, um, what has the, been the most profound lesson you've learned from engaging with school students? Okay, the first question, I think, I, I suppose her story from day one has challenged my, my, not prejudices, but my perceptions of, of, of how the project would evolve and my own, I suppose, um, conditioning. I just assume that women would be the greatest supporters of the project. That's been challenged. We have as many her story godfathers as godmothers. I call them godfathers. Over 50 men have been highly influential in opening doors and championing the project, often because they've got very, uh, very powerful, wonderful wives and daughters, and they are outright feminists. So her story is, is a, I call it a compassionate feminist movement. I still get angry. It's a dance, but I do try and make it more compassionate than anything else, because ultimately, if you think about equality, it's a state of harmony and inclusion and anger is divisive. So it's what we do with that anger. And I love that Edgar Toll quote. He said, you know, if you think about anger as a ball of emotion in your hands, now take away the anger and keep the energy and work with that energy. So I took that rage and I lit up buildings in honor of women and we created a TV series. And it was all about celebration and inclusion. And when I walk into a room, I walked into a room in RT, you know, when there's 20 people in the room and there's amazing men who are, are supporting her story in that room. It's women dominated, but it's men there. I'm like, I just, I'm the first one to put my hand and say, this is a compassionate feminist movement. We are not attacking the men. The men are involved in this project. And, you know, and you can hear the sigh of relief, but it's true. Genuinely, we've had as many her story godfathers as godmothers. And I have to name that's really important. So that's been a bit of a challenge and a bit of an eye opener for me in terms of my own conditioning and what I was perceived as would be the approach. I'm always very wary of, you know, doing what history has done, the way men did history, like to do the same for her story. So it's women's storytelling, but there are men involved in the project too. So we, you know, a male art director and an accountant, and there's men who write in the project as well as women. Um, so yeah, just to get that balance. Otherwise you've just got women blowing women's trumpets and sure, aren't we just repeating what history did? Like, where's the evolution of that? The second question about schools, What's the most significant insight? Um, oh God, it's just, it's amazing to see the impact in schools already and the uptake from teachers and the feedback has been phenomenal. We've been amazing educational psychologists that we work with and she will integrate the really advanced um, educational tools from the Nordic countries. They're far more enlightened than we are when it comes to education in Ireland. So that's been really profoundly 
beautiful experience to work with her and a group of teachers and just to make the resources super accessible. So they're downloadable, they're copyright free, anybody can adapt them from anywhere in the world. And we last year we found out that we've got we had visitors on our website from 101 countries around the world and we just started to get feedback on the impact from it, specific countries too. So it's great to see the power of the internet. You don't know where something's going to go when you start it. Um, so something specific in schools, I'm just trying to think. It was interesting, I sat down with my little sister, she's eight years old a few weeks ago, and I, we show, I showed her all the her story, you know, everything, the animations, the TV series, and it was so interesting. Her favourite part of the project was the light show. There was something about the women being made visible in the buildings um, that was very, very powerful. And she could acknowledge that at eight years of age, that, that was by far her favourite element of the project. And teenagers have mirrored that as well. It was when they saw the women on the GPO, that was a big moment. Like, we're not going away, we're not going to be put in the shadows again. So, yeah. I think so. Yeah, they're my big insights. But I just love this, the next generation. They're so progressive and inclusive and enlightened. And I remember, I've had this conversation with RT, you know, the adult platforms like the Late Late Show, they need to do children's specials. And we just need to, the adults need to just shut up and listen to the young people because they're, they're you know, light years ahead of where, where even I'm at in terms of their thinking. And it's like, they're just naturally inclusive. You know, it's that's innate in them. And we need to just, because there's so much conditioning as adults and, yeah, we just need to really open up to their way of seeing and learn from them. I think teaching should be 50-50. You know, I think as adults, we teach that we've got so much to give and they've got so much to teach us too. That's where I would come from. So to really listen to young people because they're just, yeah. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are over time a little bit. So I have to wrap up the Q&A there. Um, but before we say goodnight, I just wanted to thank everyone for um, such a diverse kind of group of speeches made there and all the connections between them. Um, what a lovely evening um, and salon um, for this year. Um, but I wanted to wrap up by giving each of the panelists an opportunity to um, plug future projects or where they can find you online or contacts um, or just anything you'd like to share um, as a wrap up. So maybe we'll go in order of Melanie, Lindsay, uh, Nada and then Blahim, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. So the Her Story website is herstory.ie. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Her Story Ireland. And you can reach out to us if you've got ideas via our um, contact page on our website. Um, looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Well, I'm predictably in UCC, in University College Cork. You'll find my uh, email on the on the webpage. My name is too long and difficult to spell for me to call out now, but you can uh, check me out in UCC. And I've just started there uh, with uh, taking up a chair on in gender history. So I'd be really interested in hearing from people, you know, with ideas for things they'd like to see being taught at third level um, and what they would like to see on curriculum and what they think would, would have made a difference for them or make a difference for them if they were to, to study at university. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity this evening as well, guys. I really appreciated it. Yes, and uh, you can find me at NUI Galway. Uh, and I would love to hear from students about, uh, as a Center for Global Women's Studies, what, what kind of courses would interest you? Because we do have an MA program, Gender, Globalization and Rights. And I have often found that our program attracts international students, but not so many Irish students. So I'm trying to figure out why is that? So if you have insights, I would be really, really grateful to hear from you. And also, I, I would also like to say, I, this was a very enjoyable evening. Um, yes, I'm speaking about something far away, 
but I see the connections. And Melanie, it, this whole project is really, really fascinating. And I would love to talk with you about uh, movements in India that are trying very similar kinds of things. Uh, and lastly, hello. Um, I, I guess I'm uh, I, so I haven't been able to do comedy in a year. This is like the first time that I've had faces in front of me uh, in so long um, in terms of like performance. So when I am able to perform again, everything does go on my social media. So if you just follow me on uh, Twitter, on Instagram, Twitter is my only outlet at the moment. So it's Liddy to the titty at the moment. It's like jokes, jokes, jokes all day, every day. So uh, <laughs> I'm trying to just get some engagement. Um, so it's at being blah. So B-E-I-N-G-L-A. I forgot how to spell my name. Um, and thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. It's been really, really inspiring. I'm probably going to need a cry uh, after this, a cathartic healing cry. So uh, Gurmi Lamagov and have a, a lovely night.